Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Sean Amdani, a pediatric cardiologist specializing in heart failure and transplant at Cleveland Clinic Children's. He is here today to talk to us about cardio-oncology. So, welcome. Hi, um, Dr. Shepard. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. And uh, it's an honor and privilege. And I, I look forward to discussing with you something that I'm extremely passionate about. Yeah, well, thanks for joining. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, cardio-oncology program, but maybe just to, to fill in our listeners, kind of what's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? Sure. So I've been here for, for uh, just about three years, and, and I wear uh, various hats within the Cleveland Clinic Children's Institution, all sort of circling around my passion for taking care of heart muscle diseases. And, and in, in that role, I've been fortunate to sort of take care of patients with inherited heart muscle diseases, you know, genetic cardiomyopathies, as they call it, uh, patients with different kinds of, of heart muscle diseases, such as those with dilated cardiomyopathies, hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, restrictive cardiomyopathies and left ventricular non-compaction cardiomyopathies. Um, I also sort of co-lead the, the Fontaine or the single ventricle congenital heart disease clinic here. One of the main focuses that I have sort of had and, and fortunate to have had that was to sort of build the pediatric cardio-oncology program or the um, cardiac surveillance program for children who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy or have completed their chemotherapy and are now long-term survivors. Perfect. So let's take a step back because there's a lot of listeners from a lot of different backgrounds. What exactly is cardio-oncology? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, up until, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, we really didn't have an understanding that people who undergo chemotherapy or, or radiotherapy or any treatment to eliminate their cancer had any long-term effects to the heart and vascular system. It's really, you know, kudos to people like you, Dr. Shepard, and everyone else here at TOSIC and here at Cleveland Clinic Children's in our oncology department that the, that the success of cancer chemotherapy has unfortunately or fortunately brought our cardiologists to realize that, you know, there are long-term consequences of the therapies that you give and, and you know, both to the heart and to the vascular system. So the cardio-oncology is essentially a field that's born more recently and the prime focus here is to make sure that we are collaborators and partners uh, trying to help mitigate and prevent some of the cardiac complications that may arise when somebody's on chemotherapy or radiotherapy. So give us a little bit of an idea. Now, now I certainly use a lot of doxorubicin. That's a, a key player here causing trouble. And it's just fascinating that someone can have had doxorubicin decades before and it still puts them at risk. Tell us a little bit about how that toxicity develops. What, what do we know at this point about toxicity? So the anthracyclines are, are the whole class, um, you know, in which you have doxorubicin and donorubicin. They're a uh, very effective tool for treating, you know, various childhood malignancies. But one of the things that it does is it causes free radical production and, and, and iron chelation and whatnot. And it's essentially, you know, the, it boils down to causing, in many cases, sort of irreversible myocardial damage 
that's persistent and progressive. So there are sort of two spectrums that we see in patients who get anthracyclines, you know, like doxorubicin and donorubicin. One is sort of the acute cardiotoxicity where you have an acute decline in heart function and heart failure symptomatology that need IV inotropic or IV heart strengthening medications. And then the sort of flip side is many of these patients actually don't have anything early on But over time, the stress to the heart builds up and they add on cardiovascular risk factors. Um, As we all age, one of the things that unfortunately happens is you you add on certain cardiometabolic risk factors such as obesity and hypertension and diabetes. And along with already that's, you know, already with the damage that's happened early on, it tags on and and then causes long-term decline in heart function, which often presents as cardiomyopathy or heart muscle disease. So tell me a little bit about the pediatric program that that you have and um, sort of how patients get involved and what does it look like? Yeah, it's certainly a labor of love. I think as as you may appreciate, you know, from the oncologic perspective is, you know, a diagnosis of cancer is really sort of devastating for a family, you know, and especially for a child. It's, you know, it's sort of life altering both for the child and more so for the family. And what ends up happening is, you know, I think over the last three years, we've been very fortunate. You know, I've been fortunate to work with some of my oncology colleagues here, Dr. Seth Rotz, who sort of um, heads the, the Pediatric Cancer Survivorship Program, and Dr. Abi Hanna, who's the head of the Pediatric Hematology Oncology Division, who's really a fierce advocate for understanding and, and trying to sort of help make sure that these kids have the highest quality of life. So what we do now is we've, over three years, sort of developed a very sort of systematic way in which we screen these patients early on. And it depends, you know, I always have this laundry list of questions for our oncologists is, you know, what kind of malignancy is this? You know, how much radiation is the child going to receive? Um, You know, how much of this radiation is going to be directed towards the chest? how much chemotherapy the patient is going to receive, what kind of chemotherapy, as you're realizing, and it's not only anthracyclines, you have other kinds of uh, chemotherapeutic agents that cause arrhythmias, that cause coronary artery disease, that cause hypertension, that cause uh, myocarditis or heart inflammation. So I try to understand that and then sort of tailor what kind of preventative and and therapeutic strategies could be applied to sort of prevent and mitigate uh, some of the complications. So it's very involved. We get involved in many cases from the get-go when we think it's a high-risk situation so as to help make sure that the chemotherapy regimen stays on track. And some of the other ones, we try to sort of allow the family to sort of process the oncologic diagnosis. And once they get discharged from their initial chemotherapeutic regimen, then they see me in the clinic and then we go over sort of the long-term goal where I'm really the supporting player, making sure that these kids have fulfilling lives. And then is this something where you continue follow-up for a long period of time as part of their survivorship plan? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, so what ends up happening is we're teasing out two things. One is sort of making them understand that, that the cardiac surveillance is going to be lifelong. The duration and the frequency is going to change over time as they get further out from the malignancy. And it also depends on two things, the, the, dose, the dose of anthracyclines that they received, the cumulative dose of anthracyclines that they received, and the cumulative radiation that they received uh, in particular to the chest. And then the second thing is help making sure that they are active, they understand that they're you know, you cannot change some of the cardiac risk factors that you've already received, but you can change the metabolic risk factors. So not being obese, uh, making sure you don't get hypertension or diabetes, being up and active could help mitigate some of the some of the effects that have already gone into the heart. So the, the patients that develop acute problems, they oftentimes may need further therapies down the road, and those therapies could be harmful as well. How often can we get patients back to a point where they have a relatively normal function? 
most of the patients, I'd say, you know, 90% of the patients that have acute cardiotoxicity will have reversal if you are treated at a center of excellence like ours or you had at Cleveland Clinic Children's, you know, early institution of cardiac therapies. And we have the, you know, we are fortunate here at Cleveland Clinic to have, you know, the best cardiovascular provider. So we have the full gamut of supportive therapies that we can use from IV medications to mechanical circulatory support. And we've utilized all sorts of things here uh, to help prevent, you know, the patient sort of uh, having a catastrophic event. So we tend to have at least 90, 95% success in turning things around. Having said that, we also have had patients from outside institutions who had irreversible myocardial damage that have gone on to receive a ventricular assist device and heart transplantation and are now now living successfully uh, with that. So we are able, we are fortunate to be able to provide that kind of uh, support to these patients. And I guess as follow up from the transplant setting, um, what's the gap that's required at this point from the time of a cancer diagnosis to a transplant? Is that, seems like it's kind of a moving target at times. Where, where is that currently? Yeah, so that's a great question. Again, it depends on the type of malignancy, and, and that's where I love to partner with uh, with smart oncologists like yourself and, and others at our institute. And it's really on a case-by-case basis. It's hard, you know, some people say it's a hard for two years or three years, but for us, it's a, it's a sort of case-by-case involved discussion where you sort of try to weigh the risks and benefits or what kind of malignancy, what are the chances of relapse? If it relapses, what are the chances of cure? Is bone marrow transplant? applicable to this population. So we try to sort of make sure that the patient gets the maximum benefit and, and maximum chance of survival. So it's a, it's a very complicated question um, and a very involved discussion that takes place. From a, a cardiac toxicity, the, the patients that don't get an acute problem, but we're going to be following long-term, um, how good are, are the current risk models? How, how well can we predict? And is there work being done to, to improve the ability to do that? Yeah, so we've certainly gotten better at our imaging tools. So back when, you know, traditional echoes, traditional cardiac surveillance was done, or somebody said, you know, 15 years ago that we did, we got cardiac surveillance for somebody with cancer, uh, you are essentially looking at echocardiogram derived ejection fraction, or the amount of squeeze that the heart has with each peak. Nowadays, we've gotten more sophisticated, especially over the last decade, where we look at something called as myocardial strain or the amount of deformation that the heart goes through with each peak. And uh, the estimate of that is called the global longitudinal strain. And we certainly look at that and the change in the global longitudinal strain, which could precede the decline in ejection fraction by a couple of months to a couple of years. So it allows us to get that lead time. I think what we all love is the lead time because it allows us to modify some of the things that allows that can then prevent overt cardiotoxicity. Uh, on the other hand, it's brought a new set of challenges because what do you do with the subclinical cardiotoxicity in a pediatric patient? Do you start them on therapy? Do you wait for a little bit? And again, that's where sort of the nuance of being at a center where you've seen you know hundreds of these and, and, and are managing them on a daily basis. There's still no overt trials in the pediatric realm that have determined uh, which patients go on to have overt cardiotoxicity. And that's where sort of the nuance of medicine comes in and, and experience comes in. What are some of those therapies that, uh, that you discuss with patients and their families in terms of trying to minimize risk? Cardio-preventative strategies that, that especially, you know, this is some of the, this is an area where we derive a lot of expertise from our adult colleagues. And, and in particular, there are two medications that are used. One is called an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, which essentially decreases the stress to your heart and avoids adverse remodeling 
The other is called carbidolol or, or a beta blocker, which again sort of does in something in a similar fashion. And both of these could be used two ways. We either use them preventative or empiric. So you start them uh, when you know somebody's at high risk and at high risk for decompensation, uh, even before or during the first dose of chemotherapy. Um, in some patients, you may decide to do a troponin trigger, you know, some sort of a, a trigger that would allow you to then sort of say, okay, this is a point, whether it be a rise in troponin T, which is a marker of myocardial damage, a rise in anti-proBNP, which is a marker of myocardial wall stress, or, or a decline in global longitudinal strain, or a decline in injection fraction, and then you could start it. The, the one thing that's important to note, and I always tell my family is that, is the benefit of having close cardiac surveillance with a cardiologist is that studies have shown that the sooner you start the heart failure medications after you develop heart failure, the more likely you are to reverse that heart damage. So if you wait for a longer period of time, the chances of having any sort of response goes down tremendously. And that's where sort of following up with us in a, in a, in a close fashion, especially in a high-risk situation, is extremely important. You're, you're seeing primarily patients on the pediatric side. How do the things that you're doing on the pediatric side compare to what we're doing in adult side? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, one, of, one of my adult counterparts, Dr. Patrick Collier, is sort of on the adult side. Um, and, but, you know, I see cancer survivors. And, and you know, there's, a, there's an interesting contrast. So I do have a lot of adult cardio-oncology colleagues, and I, I love sort of collaborating with them. And there are certain nuances that I think people should understand. One is the pediatric patient does not usually have any additional comorbidities. So they're not usually having renal disease or diabetes or atherosclerosis or ischemic cardiomyopathy. The adult colleagues, unfortunately, sometimes see patients who already have advanced atherosclerosis or peripheral arterial disease or hypertension that's uncontrolled or diabetes or end-stage renal disease. So it gets complicated because you already have metabolic, cardiometabolic risk factors, and now you add on an additional cardiotoxic agent. Um, and so that's one challenge. You know, our challenge is trying to make our families understand that something may happen 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And for that, you need to see us every six months to a year. And you know, so that that's the trade-off. So we both have a unique set of challenges. The other is the adults are using a lot of newer medications and the kind of malignancies are different too, right? You have breast cancer, you know, yes, you use certain medications that can cause cardiomyopathy, but they also use, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors, you know, colon cancer, things that we don't see on the pediatric side. And, the, and those medications can have other effects. So the immune checkpoint inhibitors, for example, can cause myocarditis or heart inflammation. And so they need to be more aware of that. So, and you can have arrhythmias with uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors and whatnot. So, there's certain different manifestations uh, that can happen in the adults, and there are different kinds of connotations when you have a pediatric patient. There is a lot of overlap. We often do trade patients who go on from being a pediatric to an adult provider. So that's where you know you're having an established pediatric cardio-oncology program and an adult cardio-oncology program is extremely important. We are fortunate, again, to have you know, advanced cardiac MRI capabilities. Again, it's a more sophisticated way to look at ejection fraction and ventricular volumes, but also to look at myocardial fibrosis and inflammation, which can happen in certain chemotherapy patients. So. so we're blessed to have a robust program on the, the pediatric and adult side, but it's a relatively new area. How, how common is it that people that might be listening might be able to find a local program that they can participate in? Yeah, that's, I think, where it's a challenge because you need somebody who's a cardiologist who understands heart muscle disease and then has special, not really special interest in, in taking care of kids with malignancies or adults with malignancies, but at the same time is now 
nuanced and expert enough to sort of have seen enough. So you need to see a certain amount of volume because this kind of cardiotoxicity and cardiac manifestations and vascular manifestations are slightly different than what you'd see with other sort of heart conditions and whatnot. So I, you know, there are certain experience centers around the country and, and so certainly we are one of them. And I think that's where you, you have to sort of be at that kind of center where, you, where you're seeing a certain amount of volume like our center. So it's hard. I think if, if you try to sort of find it, and there are probably few institutions around the country that are doing it in a, in a way that um, is advancing care. What are the gaps? What, uh, what's going to have to happen to make the next big steps to help out either preventing children from getting problems in the first place, fixing problems that might develop, minimizing risk? What, what do you think are the biggest gaps right now? Yeah, I think, you know, if I, again, this is, it's hard because in pediatrics, we don't have randomized controlled trials uh, to guide our decision making, uh, you know, from who is going to develop cardiotoxicity. I think if we had the, the precision medicine or sort of genotypic, phenotypic manifestation, not everybody, what I've been fascinated by is not everybody who receives the same chemotherapeutic agent or even the same dose of chemotherapy or radiotherapy develops the same amount of cardiotoxicity. So why does one person get more than the other or the other less than the, the first one? And I think that's where understanding if there are genetic correlates that we can understand that could help sort of re-stratify and personalize uh, the prediction modeling for that particular patient is, is one area that I think is need will be developed in the in the coming decade. Obviously, you know, you're trying to understand what kind of diagnostic procedures are going to predict overt cardiotoxicity and what will be that lead time. I think global longitudinal strain is great and it's one. It's hard because you need to have good images. You need to have a patient cooperation. And I think those are some challenges on the pediatric side. So how do you develop a surrogate marker, uh, whether it's a lab marker or an imaging marker that could predict who's going to have cardiotoxicity? So I think there are some, those are some of the unique challenges that will hopefully overcome in the next decade. Uh, but genomic medicine, uh, precision, uh, you know, sort of personalized risk prediction, those are some of the areas that I think have big gaps. Understanding medications, you know, we are talking about enalapril, you know, ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. To be honest with you, there's only one randomized control trial in pediatric heart failure to date that has looked at the efficacy of beta blockers, and that wasn't in cardio-oncology. And then the new trial that we're looking at is the Intresto trial or the, the adult heart failure medication that we are now looking at in pediatrics, but that's, again, not specific to cardio-oncology. They're looking at an overall pediatric heart failure population. So doing randomized trials that are specific to pediatric heart failure is important. Again, mechanistic studies are extremely insightful that have not been done with such robustness. So I think understanding why certain manifestations happen will allow us to sort of get to what therapies are needed to reverse them. Well, certainly I appreciate you joining today because you're helping spread the word. But from an education standpoint, families that might be looking for this sort of thing, doctors that might be sort of needing to be made aware that, that this is a, a really important area. How do, how do we spread the word how do we educate people? I think the one thing I want to uh, you know, sort of emphasize for our families and for our physicians, our amazing hematology oncology physicians who are caring for patients with cancer or who survived cancer, is that cardiac complications are real. Cardiac complications happen. They happen more often than we appreciate. And I think partnering up with a, with a cardio-oncology specialist or a person who is specialized to understand cardiac manifestations, 
of chemotherapeutic and radiotherapeutic agents is extremely important because uh, you know cancer survivors the most common cause of long term morbidity and mortality is cardiovascular diseases and i think that's where you know i think understanding that such patients require regular cardiac surveillance by a specialist who's trained to sort of look at this is extremely important John, you've given us some great insights today, and I'd like to thank you for being with us. Absolutely, Shepard. It was a, it was a pleasure, and, and I appreciate the opportunity. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.